The Red Room by H.G. Wells. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Virgil. The Red Room by H.G. Wells. I can assure you said I, that it would take a very tangible ghost to frighten me, and I stood up before the fire with my glass in my hand. It is your own choosing, said the man with the withered arm, and glanced at me askance. Eight and twenty years, said I, I have lived, and never a ghost have I seen as yet. The old woman sat staring hard into the fire, her pale eyes wide open. I, she broke in. In eight and twenty years you have lived and never seen the likes of this house, I reckon. There's a many things to see, when one's still but eight and twenty. She swayed her head slowly from side to side. A many things to see the sorrow for. I half suspected the old people were trying to enhance the spiritual terrors of their house by their droning insistence. I put down my empty glass on the table and looked about the room, and caught a glimpse of myself abbreviated and broadened to an impossible sturdiness and the queer old mirror at the end of the room well i said if i see anything tonight i shall be so much the wiser for i come to the business with an open mind it is your own choosing said the man with the withered arm once more i heard the sound of a stick and a shambling step on the flags in the passage outside and the door creaked on its hinges as a second old man entered more bent, more wrinkled, more aged even than the first. He supported himself by a single crutch. His eyes were covered by a shade, and his lower lip half averted hung pale and pink from his decaying yellow teeth. He made straight for an armchair on the opposite side of the table, sat down clumsily, and began to cough. The man with the withered arm gave this newcomer a short glance of positive dislike. The old woman took no notice of his arrival but remained with her eyes fixed steadily on the fire. I said, <laughs> it's your own choosing, said the man with the withered arm when the coughing had ceased for a while. It's my own choosing, I answered. The man with the shade became aware of my presence for the first time, and threw his head back for a moment and sideways to see me. I caught a momentary glimpse of his eyes, small and bright and inflamed. Then he began to cough and splutter again. Why don't you drink? said the man with the withered arm, pushing the bear towards him. The man with the shade poured out a glassful with a shaky arm that splashed half as much again on the deal table. A monstrous shadow of him crouched upon the wall and mocked his actions as he poured and drank. I must confess, I had scarce expected these grotesque custodians. There is to my mind something inhuman in senility, something crouching and atrovistic. The human qualities seemed to drop from old people insensibly day by day. The three of them made me feel uncomfortable, with their gaunt silences, their bent carriage, their evident unfriendliness to me and to one another. If, said I, you will show me to this hunted room of yours, I will make myself comfortable there. The old man with the cough jerked his head back so suddenly that it startled me, and shot another glance of his red eyes at me from under the shade, but no one answered me. I waited a minute, glancing from one to the other. If, I said a little louder, if you will show me to this hunted room of yours, I will relieve you 
from the task of entertaining me. There is a candle on the slab outside the door, said the man with the withered arm looking at my feet as he addressed me. But if you're going to the red room tonight, this night of all nights, said the old woman, you go alone. Very well, I answered. And which way do I go? You go along the passage for a bit, said he, until you come to a door, and through that is a spiral staircase, and halfway up that is a landing and another door covered with baies. Go through that and down the long corridor to the end, and the red room is on your left, up the steps. Have I got that right? I said and repeated his directions. He corrected me in one particular. And are you really going? said the man with the shade, looking at me again for the third time with that queer and natural tilting of the face. This night of all nights, said the old woman. It is what I came for, I said, and moved towards the door. As I did so, the old man with the shade rose and staggered round the table, so as to be closer to the others and to the fire. At the door, I turned and looked at them, and saw they were all close together, dark against the firelight staring at me over their shoulders with an intent expression on their ancient faces. Good night, I said, setting the door open. It is your own choosing, said the man with the withered arm. I left the door wide open until the candle was well alight, and then I shut them in and walked down a chilly echoing passage. I must confess that the oddness of these three old pensioners in whose charge her ladyship had left the castle, and a deep-toned old-fashioned furniture of the housekeeper's room in which they foregathered, affected me in spite of my efforts to keep myself at a matter-of-fact phase. They seemed to belong to another age, an older age, an age when things spiritual were different from this of ours, less certain, an age when omens and witches were credible, and ghosts beyond denying. Their very existence was spectral, the cut of their clothing, fashions born in dead brains. The ornaments and conveniences of the rooms about them were ghostly, the thoughts of vanished men, which still hunted rather than participated in the world of today. But with an effort, I sent such thoughts to the right about. The long, draughty subterranean passage was chilly and dusty, and my candle flared and made the shadows cower and quiver. The echoes ring up and down the spiral staircase, and a shadow came sweeping up after me, and one fled before me into the darkness overhead. I came to the landing and stopped there for a moment, listening to a rustling that I fancy I heard. Then satisfied of the absolute silence, I pushed open the baize-covered door and stood in the corridor. The effect was scarcely what I expected, for the moonlight coming in by the great window on the grand staircase picked out everything in vivid black shadow or silvery illumination. Everything was in its place. The house might have been deserted on the yesterday instead of eighteen months ago. There were candles in the sockets of the sconces, and whatever dust had gathered on the carpets or upon the polished flooring was distributed so evenly as to be invisible in the moonlight. I was about to advance, and stopped abruptly. A bronze group stood upon the landing, hidden from me by the corner of the wall, but its shadow fell with marvelous distinctness upon the white paneling, and gave me the impression of someone crouching to waylay me. I stood rigid for half a minute, perhaps. Then, with my hand in the pocket that held my revolver, I advanced, only to discover that a game aid, an eagle glistening in the moonlight. That incident for a time restored my nerves, and a porcelain chinaman on the bull table 
whose head rocked silently as I passed them, scarcely startled me. The door to the red room and the steps up to it were in a shadowy corner. I moved my candle from side to side in order to see clearly the nature of the recess in which I stood before opening the door. Here it was, thought I, that my predecessor was found, and the memory of that story gave me a sudden twinge of apprehension. I glanced over my shoulder at the gamadade in the moonlight and opened the door of the red room rather hastily, with my face half turned to the pallid silence of the landing. I entered, closed the door behind me at once, turned the key I found in the lock within, and stood with the candle held aloft, surveying the scene of my vigil, the great red room of Lorien Castle, in which the young duke had died, or rather in which he had begun his dying, for he had opened the door and fallen headlong down the steps I had just ascended. That had been the end of his vigil, of his gallant attempt to conquer the ghostly tradition of the place and never, I thought, had apoplexy better served the ends of superstition. And there were other and older stories that clung to the room. Back to the half-credible beginning of it all, the tale of a timid wife, and the tragic end that came to her husband's jest of frightening her. And looking around that large shadowy room, with its shadowy window bays, its recesses and alcoves, one could well understand the legends that had sprouted in its black corners, its germinating darkness. My candle was a little tongue of flame in its vastness that fell to pierce the opposite end of the room and left an ocean of mystery and suggestion beyond its island of light. I resolved to make a systematic examination of the place at once and dispel the fanciful suggestions of its obscurity before they obtained hold upon me. After satisfying myself of the fastening of the door, I began to walk about the room, peering round each article of furniture tucking up the valances of the bed and opening its curtains wide. I pulled up the blinds and examined the fastenings of the several windows before closing the shutters, leant forward and looked up at the blackness of the wide chimney, and tapped the dark oak paneling for any secret opening. There were two big mirrors in the room, each with a pair of sconces bearing candles, and on the mantel shift too were more candles and china candlesticks and these I lit one after the other. The fire was laid, an unexpected consideration from the old housekeeper, and I lit it to keep down any disposition to shiver, and when it was burning well, I stood round with my back to it and regarded the room again. I had pulled up a chintz-covered armchair and a table to form a kind of barricade before me, and on this I lay my revolver ready to hand. My precise examination had done me good, but I still found the remoter darkness of the place and its perfect stillness too stimulating for the imagination. The echoing of the stir and the crackling on the fire was no sort of comfort to me. The shadow in the alcove at the end in particular had that undefinable quality of a presence, that odd suggestion of a lurking living thing that comes so easily in silence and solitude. At last, to reassure myself, I walked with a candle into it, and satisfied myself that there was nothing tangible there. I stood that candle upon the floor of the alcove, and left it in that position. By this time I was in a state of considerable nervous tension, although to my reason there was no adequate cause for the condition. My mind, however, was perfectly clear. I postulated quite unreversely that nothing supernatural could happen, and to pass the time I began to string some rhymes together and goes by fashion, 
of the original legend of the place. A few I spoke aloud, but the echoes were not pleasant. For the same reason I also abandoned, after a time, a conversation with myself upon the impossibility of ghosts and hunting. My mind reverted to the three old and distorted people downstairs, and I tried to keep it upon that topic. The somber reds and blacks of the room troubled me. Even with the seven candles, the place was merely dim. The one in the alcove flared in a draught, and the fire flickering kept the shadows and penumbra perpetually shifting and stirring, casting about for a remedy. I recalled the candles I had seen in the passage, and with a slight effort, walked out into the moonlight, carrying a candle and leaving the door open, and presently returned with as many as ten. These I put in various knick-knacks of china with which the room was sparsely adorned, lit in place where the shadows had lain deepest, some on the floor, some in the window's recesses, until at last my seventeenth candles were so arranged that not an inch of the room but had the direct light of at least one of them. It occurred to me that when the ghost came, I could warn him not to trip over them. The room was now quite brightly illuminated. There was something very cheery and reassuring in these little streaming flames, and snuffing them gave me an occupation and afforded a reassuring sense of the passage of time. Even with that, however, the brooding expectation of the vigil weighed heavily upon me. It was after midnight that the candle in the alcove suddenly went out, and the black shadow springs back in its place. I did not see the candle go out. I simply turned and saw the darkness was there, as one might start and see the unexpected presence of a stranger. By Jove, I said aloud, that draught a strong one. And taking the matches from the table, I walked across the room in a leisurely manner to relight the corner again. My first match would not strike. And as I succeeded with the second, something seemed to blink on the wall before me. I turned my head involuntarily and saw the two candles on the little table by the fireplace were extinguished. I rose at once to my feet. Odd, I said. Did I do that myself in a flash of absent-mindedness? I walked back, relit one, and as I did so, I saw the candle on the right sconce of one of the mirrors wink and go right out. And almost immediately, his companion followed it. There was no mistake about it. The flame vanished, as if the wicks had been suddenly nipped between a finger and a thumb, leaving the wick neither glowing nor smoking, but black. While I stood, gaping, the candle at the foot of the bed went out, and the shadows seemed to take another step towards me. This won't do, I said I, and first one, then another candle on the mantelshelf followed. What's up? I cried with a queer high note getting into my voice somehow. At that, the candle in the wardrobe went out, and the one I had relit in the alcove followed. Steady on, I said. These candles are wanted. Speaking with a half-hysterical fasciousness and scratching away at a match the while for the mantle candlesticks, my hands trembled so that the twice I missed the rough paper of the matchbox. As the mantle emerged from darkness again, two candles at a remoter end of the window were eclipsed. But with the same match, I also relit the larger mirror candles and those on the floor near the doorway, so that for the moment I seemed to gain on the extinctions. But then in the volley there vanished four lights at once in the different corners of the room, and I struck another match in quivering haste and stood hesitating whether to take it. As I stood undecided, 
An invisible hand seemed to sweep out the two candles on the table. With a cry of terror, I dashed at the alcove, then into the corner, then into the window, relighting three as two more vanished by the fireplace. Then, perceiving a better way, I dropped the matches on the ironbound deed box in the corner and caught up the bedroom candlestick. With this, I avoided the delay of striking matches. But for all, that steady process of extinction went on, and the shadows I feared and fought against returned and crept in upon me. First, a step gained on this side of me, and then on that. It was like a ragged storm cloud sweeping out the stars. Now, and then, one returned for a minute, and was lost again. I was now almost frantic with the horror of coming darkness, and my self-possession deserted me. I leapt, panting and disheveled from candle to candle in a vain struggle against that remorseless advance. I bruised myself on the thigh against the table. I sent a chair headlong. I stumbled and fell and whisked the cloth from the table in my fall. My candle rolled away from me and I snatched another as I rose. Abruptly this was blown out as I swung it off the table by the wind of my sudden movement and immediately the two remaining candles followed. But there was light still in the room, a red light that starved off the shadows from me. The fire! Of course I could thrust my candle between the bars and relight it. I turned to where the flames were dancing between the glowing coals and splashing red reflections upon the furniture, made two steps towards the grate, and incontinently the flames dwindled and vanished, the glow vanished, the reflections rushed together and vanished, and as I thrust the candle between the bars, darkness closed upon me like the shutting of an eye, wrapped about me in a stifling embrace, sealed my vision, and crushed the last vestiges of reason from my brain. The candle fell from my hand. I flung on my arms in a vain effort to thrust that ponderous blackness away from me, and, lifting my voice, screamed with all my might, once, twice, thrice. Then I think I must have staggered to my feet. I know I thought suddenly of the moonlit corridor, and, with my head bowed and my arms over my face, made a run for the door. But I have forgotten the exact position of the door and struck myself heavily against the corner of the bed. I staggered back, turned, and was either struck or struck myself against some other bulky furniture. I have a vague memory of battering myself to and fro in the darkness of a cramped struggle, and of my own wild crying as I darted to and fro, of a heavy blow at last upon my forehead, a horrible sensation of falling that lasted an age of my last frantic effort to keep my footing. And then... I remember no more. I opened my eyes in daylight. My head was roughly bandaged, and a man with a withered arm was watching my face. I looked about me, trying to remember what had happened, and for space I could not recollect. I turned to the corner and saw the old woman, no longer abstracted, pouring out some drops of medicine from a blue phial into a glass. Where am I? I asked. I seem to remember you, and yet I cannot remember who you are. They told me then, and I heard of the hunted red room as one who hears a tale. We found you at dawn, said he, and there was blood on your forehead and lips. It was very slowly I recovered my memory of my experience. You believe now, said the old man, that the room is haunted? He spoke no longer as one who greets an intruder. But as one who grieves for a broken friend. Yes, said I, 
the room is haunted. And you have seen it. And we who have lived here all our lives have never set eyes upon it, because we have never dared. Tell us, is it truly the old Earl who... No, said I, it is not. I told you so, said the old lady, with the glass in her hand. It is this poor young countess who is frightened. It is not, I said. There is neither ghost of Earl nor ghosts of countess in that room. There is no ghost there at all, but worse, far worse. Well, they said, the worst of all things that hunt poor mortal man, said I, and that is in all its nakedness, fear, fear that will not have light or sound, that will not bear with reason, that deafens and darkens and overwhelms. It followed me through the corridor. It fought against me in the room. I stopped abruptly. There was an interval of silence. My hand went up to my bandages. Then the man with the shade sighed and spoke. That is it, said he. I knew that was it. A power of darkness to put such a curse upon a woman. It looks there always. You can feel it even in the daytime, even of a bright summer's day. In the hangings, in the curtains, keeping behind you however you face about. In the dusk, it creeps along the corridor and follows you, so that you dare not turn. There is fear in that room of hers, black fear, and there will be, so long as this house of sin endures. End of the Red Room by H.G. Wells